You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, well, thank you all for showing up. This is what I have to wear at school, and it's a lot easier than a mask. I look stupid, but um, my wife says, as long as you aren't stupid, it's okay. (laughs) We talked about the beginning of Genesis last time, and we did both both chapters in, what, 25 minutes? Uh, That's not probably how we're used to dealing with Genesis, but I was stressing just a few themes last week. And the first thing being that, wouldn't it be great if this is where we began? In the beginning, God created. Ourselves personally sometimes have really wrestled with trying to begin with the right beginning. And we look at the old creation in the light of a new creation. New creation in Christ from 2 Corinthians 5.17 All things are made new. So for the Christian in the life, in doxology, in worship, in life in general, this is where we ought to begin. And it's a beautiful, powerful description of God's work in those first two chapters of Genesis. And one thing you notice that there's a a transcultural emphasis in Genesis 1 you notice that it's almost absent all rhetoric. It out Hemingway's. Hemingway's. Um, There is a kind of straightforward clarity to the rhythms of that chapter. And God made, God created. Barah means God, uh, in a sense, introduced and created out of nothing. But what stands out in Genesis 1 is God's voice. And our God, the living God, the creator and redeemer God, is a God who's known mainly by his speech, by his communication. The vocal rather than the visual dominates the description of God. He reveals himself. And understanding God is, I think, the clearest way to understanding ourselves. And coming to terms with who we are made in his image, male and female created he them. So that was our stress last week. The voice of God, the garden uh, reality. This week we turn to the mess of the human condition. Uh, And it's interesting, a, a friend of mine was asked why he was a pastor. And he said, without even thinking, I just said, the mystery of God, and the mess of the human condition. And that pretty much explains and describes where we're all at, I think, uh, when we follow Christ. The mystery of God and living in the mess of the human condition. But, and this is one thing I really want us not to miss uh, in this uh, 30 minutes or so together, is that even in this litany of depravity, that we see in Genesis 3 through 11, we see the grace of God all through this litany of depravity. 
So I want us to look at kind of this, the litany, as well as the liturgy of grace, and how these two come together. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we ask now that as we open your word to the story of Genesis, that it would be part of our story as well, and we would see ourselves in this story by your grace and mercy. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. So our first exposure to evil is in the garden, in the very place that God created in beauty, in fellowship, in harmony. And we're given not a lecture on evil, but we're given a picture of evil, a story, a description. A description of um, Adam and Eve, and Eve being seduced by the snake. And I'm not into a long description here of figurative and literal language. I think you could tell it's a story. And I think you can tell that figurative language operates largely here. I wouldn't call it a myth, I'd call it a story. And the line between what is actually to be taken literally and what is to be understood figuratively, I think is in play in a kind of dynamic way. A 17-year-old girl, Darnell Frazier, took the picture of George Floyd being suffocated. That video, that video has had dramatic impact. And we've seen the witness of that this past week. It depicts a story. It's a story in video. We're getting a story that is voiced, a story that is told. Again, not a lecture on evil, but a story. The story makes evil more vivid. And the conciseness with which Genesis 3 is told of our rebellion, of our fall, which has been replicated now in each individual that's born, is dramatic. And it starts with, and I, this is what I, I'm wanting, because we don't often do this, I'm wanting us to see Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, and the Tower of Babel in 20 minutes. Because I think there's something about the Genesis description from 3 to 11 that is uh, important to see kind of in the whole. I think the Hebrew mentality was such that they did sit around and tell the story. They didn't sit so much in pews listening to someone in a pulpit as much as being in the context of understanding the story that God has revealed. Interesting that question that that the snake poses to Eve. Did God really say? And I'll tell you, translators have really struggled over how to bring this out because, uh, and the thought isn't that the primary point of seduction is doubt. The primary point of seduction is disdain. 
not doubt. That Satan's concern here was to mock God in questioning as if somehow what God was holding Adam and Eve to was below their dignity. And of course, that's the most powerful way to move people away from righteousness is to question their sense of personhood and their sense of dignity. Number two on your outline, to eat the forbidden fruit meant assuming the prerogatives of God. It meant usurping the place of God. Adam and Eve knew the difference between right and wrong. That is fundamental to anyone's uh, sense of, uh, of being able to pursue moral virtue and fellowship with God. The issue was not the recognition of the difference between good and evil. As Chris Wright says, that's foundational to any genuine moral freedom, to know the difference between right and wrong. Our moral capacity, our faculty, which is commended in the biblical experience. No, the issue is moral autonomy. That I have a right unto myself to decide what is right and wrong and what is meaning and what is significant. And that's Satan's, the snake's, uh, point of leverage in his seduction. Doubt, yes, but more than that, the idea of disdain. That's deeply rooted in the American consciousness, I think, this kind of moral autonomy. Um, just let me read a paragraph here that I think helps to explain it. Nietzsche is the one who said God is dead, and God remains dead, and we've killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, Nietzsche wrote, what festivals of atonement what sacred games shall we have to invent? Nietzsche understood that if you eliminate God, there's a vacuum, an emptiness. It's got to be filled with something. The quest for meaning has become every person's right. Justice Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court, no longer a, a justice but uh, has retired, said it plainly. And this is the line that has been so crystallized in our social democratic, and, and this is why I think that democracy and autocracy end up in the same place in some respects. I'd much prefer the democracy, but democracy that's ruled by self and autocracy ruled by a strong man end up eventually in the same place. The self rules or the autocrat rules. Now I say that far preferring democracy over to autocracy. But Justice Anthony Kennedy said it plainly, at the heart of liberty, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Well, that's palpably untrue. The heart of liberty is not defined by us. The heart of liberty is defined by God. And this sounds uh, 
it sounds so socially acceptable, but it is so dramatically wrong. But it is the basis of a social democratic republic. Professor Andrew Delbanco in The Real American Dream describes culture as the stories and symbols by which we try to hold back the melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. I think a lot of that can uh, be traced back to this initial rebellion that Adam and Eve experienced and the seduction of the snake. Number four on your outline, Steve Jobs offered an iconic apple as the forbidden fruit. Isn't it interesting? We, we carry around in our pockets and in our laptops a symbol that comes right out of Genesis 3. The bitten apple. He intentionally created a company philosophy that mocked the biblical message of the fall. Job flipped the story. It's God who lies and the devil who speaks truth. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the snake's line. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Andy Crouch, who's a Christian thinker, commentator, writes, That bitten apple was just one of Steve Jobs' many touches of genius, capturing the promise of technology in a single glance. He turned Eve's apple, the symbol of fallen humankind, into a religious icon for true believers in technology. Jobs was able to articulate a perfectly secular form of hope. Hope in devices, hope in products that, uh, and you can see the Tower of Babel coming, uh, but the idea of the bitten apple as an iconic, a religious iconic symbol. And when the serpent said, their eyes will be opened, he meant that human beings would insist on seeing things their way rather than God's way. Number five on your outline, having sinned, Adam and Eve feigned innocence before God and played the blame game. But there was no excuse, and they knew it. And, you know, we could really, um, all of this would, uh, deserves considerable time and thought. Uh, they understand immediately that they're naked. And it's interesting, before the, the radical break with God's will, and I'm kind of avoiding the word fall, it is definitely the fall, but I don't know as if speaking of it as the fall captures the radical rebellious break from God's will that humanity undergoes and experiences through this rebellious act. They were naked and they were innocent, and then they made a break. And now they know they live in rebellion. And that, immediately, there's two things that happen. They need to cover up, and they need to blame. Cover up and blame are two responses to this willful pursuit of autonomy.
Number six, Adam represents more than himself. He represents all of humanity. Eve can no more be blamed representing her gender than Cain can be blamed for being the oldest son. Older sons don't necessarily have a proclivity to evil and rebellion. <laughs> More than younger sons or middle sons. Eve isn't uh, picked out here for it. In fact, it, it is a mutual falling and rebellion against God that is outlined. I have I quoted more at length on number six for the reason of tying Adam into what what Paul says to us in Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in the way death came to all people because all sinned, Adam's precedent-setting negative representation, however, is a pattern, a type of the one to come namely Jesus Christ, the son of Adam. The apostle hastens to add, the gift is not like the trespass, the gift of Christ. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Oh, so much more could be said about Genesis 3 and our rebellion. But let's move on to Cain and Abel. The litany of depravity continues with Cain. Cain and Abel offer a... They give an offering to God. There's no description here of God requiring this. Uh, it is prompted by themselves and by their... Um, by what we would think is well-intentioned goodwill. But Cain elects Abel's sacrifice of a lamb. And what's striking is that, you know, uh, Cain works with the soil, grows a crop, presumably gives the best of his crop as an offering to God. Abel is a shepherd. He raises a flock and gives a sacrificial lamb, the fat portions, which means that the, the lamb was sacrificed to God. It's sobering to realize that God doesn't necessarily, he's not necessarily pleased with the best that we have to give. That doesn't make us acceptable to God, giving the best of what we have to give. And there's no, uh, there's no explanation here in the story. It's lived out. And it's interesting how much of, uh, of life happens before we hear the explication or the explanation from God. So the Exodus takes place before we get the Ten Commandments. Grace always precedes obedience. How God works to redeem always precedes before the description of what it is that God expects of us. I find that striking. Well, God elects Abel's worship, sacrifice, but not Cain's. Is Cain judged for that? No, he's not. Is it clear to Cain 
that God prefers Abel's sacrifice, his the fatted portions of a lamb? Yeah. So what's Cain supposed to do? Cain's supposed to offer the sacrifice that God wants. Number two, God's grace came to Cain in the form of soul-searching questions and a sober warning. And here's three questions. Interesting, isn't it? This is the sto- you know the story of our rebellion and the story of evil as it begins, and and yet God, like uh, the psychologist, asked Cain, "Why are you angry?" You. you as if to say, you don't have to be angry, Cain. You don't need to be angry with me or with yourself or with the world. Then the second question, why is your face downcast? You don't need to be depressed. Happy is the person who trusts in the Lord. And then the third question, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? What is it about human nature that just rebels, <laughs> that wants to be accepted on one's own terms rather than on God's terms? Why is, it that, why is that so instilled within us in our depravity? Because it is. I think it is for all of us. God's word to Cain, these questions were meant to bring him into fellowship, into harmony. The center of the story of Cain and Abel, of course, is Cain's willful, intentional, violent murder of Abel, his brother. Uh, The awfulness of the deed is accentuated, I think, by the stark brevity of the description. And this is the first of countless killing fields. And he mocks God in his response when asked by God, Where's your brother? Am I the shepherd's shepherd? A play on words. Am I the shepherd's shepherd? We see how sin separates us from God. Uh, I find this, uh, I mean, I, 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 I quote from 1 John and Hebrews 11, number 4, number 5, number 6, um, because remember, one of the sub-thoughts of this particular study is biblical fusion, how the Bible fuses together in a stay-in-the-story concern. The Apostle John said to Cain, I'm quoting from 1 John 3, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So John uses Cain as an example of what not to do and not to be. And Hebrews uses Abel 
The author of Hebrews begins his most famous chapter with Abel. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he brought a better offering. Somehow, Abel perceives, what does God want? Not the best of what I have to give, but a sign of my own humility, a sign of my own sort of meekness before God. He figured that out. He wasn't told. When God spoke well of his offering, and by faith Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. And the declaration that Abel being, number six, being dead still speaks, means, says Luther, that he who, when he was actually alive, could not teach even his own brother by his faith, an example now that he's dead, teaches the whole world. In other words, he is more alive than ever. So great a thing is faith, it is life in God. Leave it to, leave it to Luther. <laughs> he wasn't successful with his brother, but he's successful with us teaching us the truth about God. What I find so striking is that the first person to present a sacrificial lamb, and God will use the altar and lambs on that altar as a testimony pointing forward to the cross of Christ and to the sacrificial lamb. But the first person to present a sacrificial lamb becomes a sacrificial lamb. Killed because of our evil. Killed because of the fall. Killed by Cain because he envies his brother's acceptance. In five generations, the human condition is only compounded, becomes greater. Uh, Number eight on your outline, the Bible moves from an up-close and personal look at evil to a wide-angled shot. Uh, suddenly, it blow, it, we've had it Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, but now it's it's become kind of cosmic. We've seen the compounded effect within culture. And we come to Genesis 6, and uh, uh, boy, you read commentaries on Genesis 6, and they're, they're struggling. Every commentator, every biblical scholar that, that I read on Genesis 6 is struggling to understand, well, what? who are the sons of God? And these Nephilim, these uh, sort of giants in the land, and, and they're able to uh, marry whoever they want, uh, the implication being that they have harems. They can just pick up women and, uh, and own them as their, as their wives. Whatever this description of in Genesis 6 of these sons of God, these giants, these Nephilims that can do what they want and exercise their own uh, prerogative. They are power figures. Power figures that are operating completely away from God, without God, without His Word. And they are a description of sort of the power of society turned away from God. And that whole uh, Noah description, but we're going to uh, we're going to leave them as a picture of evil, and turn to Genesis 11 and the power, uh, the Tower of Babel. So number C on your outline, and number one, 
Genesis 11 describes how a fearful humanity sought to guarantee solidarity by building a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We had uh, dinner with a couple on Friday night, um, and uh, he's just finished his doctoral dissertation at New York University, and uh, he has tried to understand the uh, the ethical implications of why people are hedge fund investors. That's what his dissertation has been on he, in the education and business school. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the, the rationale, the desire to build this tower was to make a name for oneself. And he has said the most, I didn't tie this even in in our, in our conversation around the dinner table, but he has tied this into what's more important for most investors is not money, but reputation is being understood and approved by people who know the name, know their name. The scary truth that emerges in this litany of depravity is that human evil, left unchecked, can become very powerful. And it's kind of, it's not the ugliness of evil. These are two things that, you know, when we studied the book of Revelation together, I stress the idea of there's the ugliness of evil and there's the beautiful side of evil. And here Genesis 11 is something of the power of evil, the power of, uh, of technology harnessed to ends that are irrespectable, irrespective of God. Number two on your outline, it doesn't take much imagination to link today's techno tower of Babel to the ancient one. On Google Maps, the, plant, the plain of Shinar borders Silicon Valley. Isn't it interesting, the, 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 the tie-in of Genesis 11 and the tie-in of our technological culture uh, doesn't seem to require a lot of imagination the connection of the two. The Tower of Babel and its quest for salvation through technology is an ideology that's still in play today. Tech's passionate drive for product perfection is like these oven-baked bricks. Uh, Google Glass is compared to the, the pitch that kept these bricks together. The human belief, number two, the human belief that innovative products meet not only physical needs but also satisfy spiritual needs dates back to, I think, the ancient times. I don't know if you've had a chance to see Jeff Olowski's uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you ought to watch that um, because it, it, it kind of chronicles by the inventors and innovators of technology the power of technology to overcome our thoughtful, rational selves. And the algorithms on these social media platforms that are addictive and deceptive and manipulative. And this gets worked out um, in the social dilemma, I think, makes a strong case. And uh, Tristan Harris, 
former Google executive, claims that the power of artificial intelligence to overwhelm human strength may not be far off, but the power of AI to overwhelm human weakness has long since passed. And he says this, picture a supercomputer pointed at your brain, programmed by a thousand tech designers. Harris claims that this technology is at the root of our polarization, our radicalization, our alienation. The existential threat goes beyond the marketplace. A weaponized social media impacts every aspect of our lives and accounts for a gigantic increase in depression, anxiety, especially among young people. The tech industry has created a digital Frankenstein that brings out the worst in humanity. Interesting, isn't it? Genesis 11, the 21st century, we're still struggling with this idea of man's creativity pointed in a direction away from God, away from worship, away from his ethics. Now, I've got a few moments, and this is really the heart of what we're here for, the Liturgy of Grace. Uh, number one, there's a mis the wrong word in its place, but I'm reading number one under D, the Liturgy of Grace. We've got, looked at the litany of depravity, now the Liturgy of Grace. The book of Hebrews refers to Genesis 3 through, 11, 3 through 11 by highlighting the faith of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. The Liturgy of Grace overshadowed the, and that should be the litany of evil, not the Liturgy of Evil. I'm using liturgy here as kind of the order of grace notes that we find in Genesis 3 through 11. And that's over... Uh, that, I think, overshadows this litany of evil. So number one, Abel offered a sacrifice that pleased God, not himself. Enoch believed in God and earnestly sought him, even when everyone was living as if God didn't exist. And Noah accepted the warning of God and in holy fear built an ark to save his family. My point is this, when the New Testament goes back and looks at Genesis 3 through 11, just as we have done, it sees the heroic, God-empowered sacrifice of Abel. It sees Enoch walking with God even when everybody's not. And Noah, out of holy fear, building an ark. Really powerful understanding the grace that permeated this early description of the human condition. Number two, we learn from Genesis that the Lord agonized over humanity's wickedness. In Genesis 6, 6, you have this description of, uh, of God in looking at this difficult human condition. Genesis 6, 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor 
in the eyes of the Lord. We've got a lot to thank Noah for. <laughs> Noah caused God to hesitate, even though deeply troubled. And you know, we're, we're speaking in anthropomorphisms. We're using human terms to describe God, which are always going to be inadequate. But Noah gives God pause. Although deeply troubled and desirous of wiping out humanity, Noah's righteousness, and he's described this way in much the same way that Job was, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had, and then he describes Noah. Number uh, three, there are hints of hope and redemption in everything the Lord did. Our earliest foreshadowing of the cross of Christ comes in God's curse against the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Even as God made plain the dire consequences of the fall, he revealed his tenderness toward Adam and Eve by clothing them with the garments of skin, meaning that animals were killed in order to clothe them, and placing his mark of protection on Cain. Even Cain is dealt with mercifully. Number four, we can't read the specifications of the ark without being impressed with God's effort to work out redemption down to the last detail. God's heavenly design for our salvation is pledged in his covenant with Noah, always looking forward to the cross. You should, if you would put that participle in, looking forward to the cross, I'd appreciate it. Um, in the flow of Peter's letter to God's elect exiles, and here is uh, in First Peter chapter three, we have in this idea of biblical fusion. Peter goes back to Genesis six. In First Peter chapter three, this epistle, which I think is so timely for us in our culture today, Paul, uh, Peter writing to resident aliens and chosen exiles, and he goes back to the days of Noah. And in uh, verse 19, uh, it's hard. I'm, I'd like to pick up more of the context for uh, Peter is just describing Christ and his suffering once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then verse 19 of 1 Peter 3. I don't know if I, I don't think I quoted that in your text, but here it is. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. You know, in the Apostles' Creed, where we speak of he descended into hell, this is where that phrase comes through. It would be more accurate in the Apostles' Creed if we have said he descended into the depths of death. He identified with us fully in our death. Um, because this is where that phrase in the Apostles' Creed comes from, but it's not necessarily saying that God entered hell uh, proclaiming. After made alive, he went and made proclamation to the, impart, to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, through baptism. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. 
get the connection. The Apostle Peter is going all the way back to Genesis 6 to say in effect that this whole stream of thinking, this whole stream of history, this whole stream of work is in reference to the redemptive center of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the factor in history that brings everything into understanding and perspective. In that age, only eight people made it. Eight people baptized, as it were. Eight people in the ark of in in the ark. And that, Peter says, ought to be an encouragement to those resident aliens, chosen exiles, those oddities that are in Christ in a culture that is permeated and anti-Christ. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers and submission. Number six... The author of Hebrews echoes Peter's application to the people of God by quoting, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And finally, number seven, the curse and its fallout were always intended to lead us back to our true nature as God's image bearers. God's judgment was always necessary to protect us from ourselves. Our parents were driven from the garden for a reason. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolized usurping God's authority and acquiring for ourselves the divine prerogative to determine good and evil. The symbolism of a cherub guarding the garden and flaming with a flaming sword flashing back and forth blocking the way to the tree of life serves as a vivid reminder that there is no humanistic way back to the fulfillment to the fullness of life the saga of evil is great but god's grace is greater and there is no other way to redemption than by the grace of god so, as I've said, we're trying to do it backwards here. <laughs> Read Genesis 3 through 11 this week. Uh, next week, it's Abraham. We're doing the whole life of Abraham in our Sunday school class uh, next week. We're, we're trying to see the story and the, the movement of that story. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your grace, the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for intervening redemptively in the course of human history. And really, right from the beginning, show us the sign of what would bring that fulfillment, that redemption through you. Together we give you thanks. Help us in the course of this week. We pray for your grace to precede our obedience. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.